So Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. There are certain passages when you come to in the scripture that as a preacher, um, they feel as if they have a certain or greater degree of gravity to them. This is definitely one of those. I I would be the first to tell you right now, the sermon I have prepared by the grace of God is woefully inadequate for the text that's here. This is an incredible text. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, just stick your hand up nice and high. There's some guys that will make sure that you get one so you can track with us. This text is massive. Um, But here's the confidence that I do have. In this text, we're going to see the gospel so clearly defined. And there may be a lot of places, and I mean a lot of places in the world, where, where they preach the gospel better than I do or preach the gospel better than we do. But the one thing that we can say with confidence, no one preaches a better gospel than the one that is here in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. This text sums up all of the theology of Heritage Christian Fellowship and of Christianity in general. So we're gonna look at it though, but we're gonna start beginning in verse one and just kind of take a running start for our review. Let's read beginning in verse one, it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, who were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. We've spent the last two weeks going through these first seven verses in which Paul puts forth the dark backdrop to the glorious gospel that he's dropping on us now. And he, he paints a dark and dim reality of the condition of humanity both before Christ and then after Christ has come and invaded uh, the, the, and worked in the life of a believer. He tells us that first we are dead in our sins. That number two, we are in captivity to Satan following the course of this world. And three, that we are by our nature children of wrath objects destined to experience the wrath of God because of our rebellion against God. But then, but God appears. In verse four is the title of our text last week, but God. Say it with me nice and loud. But God. Someone on our staff, I won't say who, said, you should title last week's passage, the biggest but in the Bible, which goes to show that you can take the person out of junior high, but you can't take the junior high out of the person. It was Kathy Johnston, our women's ministry leader, just so you know. <laughs> no, but, but God, God intervenes. And because of Jesus, we find that we are no longer objects of wrath, but we become objects of his kindness. And we talked last week about the reality that God says, for the rest of eternity, you are going to be like a laser light show to the world that broadcasts how good I am. There are beings, the angels will look upon us forever with wonder and amazement at God's grace on our life. 
That is an incredible, incredible reality. Number two, we found that we are people of freedom, not people of slavery. That we are no longer imprisoned to Satan. We are no longer bound to sin. We are no longer uh, stuck following the course of the world, but we have been set free and we can pursue joy and we can pursue peace and we don't have to constantly bang our heads against the dead end walls of the things of this world that promise joy and fulfillment and always let us down. That we can follow Christ. And number three, we found that we have been given life in place of death. And you might remember last week we looked at the story of Lazarus as a picture of our salvation. That we were dead in the grave, stinky, decaying, dead. And that as God came by and saw Jeff Hensley lying in the grave, dead, disgusting, decaying, rotting, he looked at me and looked at his son and said, I want him to live. Will you die for him? And that Jesus Christ gloriously said, yes. And that we have been called forth from the grave, called forth from death into life because of the work of Jesus Christ. It is a beautiful reality. Now, the first part of what we talked about, the brokenness of this world, while they might disagree with why we are broken and seriously underestimate the necessity or what we need to fix what's broken, most of the world would agree that there's things that are absolutely wrong with the world. Most people would absolutely agree with this. And, and you can see it if you just go to a bookstore. The, the biggest section in many bookstores is what section? The self-help section, which exists because the self needs some help. That's the whole idea. And in the self-help section are books that go on and on about things we can do, practices we can take on, things we can do in order to improve and make our lives better. And so I went just on Amazon, for example, and just looked up some of the top selling, the highest recommended right now books and what the themes are in the self-help section. And interestingly enough, this blew my mind, I didn't know this, number one and two are coloring books. In the adult self-help section, the two highest selling self-help books right now are coloring books, one of them titled Color Your Way to Calm. And they are adult coloring books designed that as we, as we do this, that we'll find peace and we'll find joy. Now, can you find peace and relaxation in coloring or drawing or whatever it is you do? Of course. Does it last? No. No. Other topics include making the most of your time, the ABCs of success, self-compassion and how to be kind to yourself, yoga for inner peace and wisdom, how serenity leads to happiness and peace, how to have lasting intimacy in your relationships, how to improve your motivation, and another book that's called Change Me Prayers. Not prayers to God asking for him to intervene, but things that you can chant, and the very, the very uttering of these words can change you and bring peace and all these things into your life. And here's the thing about all of these self-help books, all of them. They are all works-based books promising that if you do these things, your life will get better here. It's the very definition of what works-based fulfillment and joy is. That's what all of them are. You will be happier if you, color, I guess. <laughs> you will be happier if you, you will find peace if you, and they're promising these things if you do all of these things. 
Or at least they'll offer, here's how you can deal with the difficulties that you got. Just be nicer to yourself. You're broken, but that's okay. Here's how you can be at peace by just being more compassionate to yourself, more understanding to yourself, and all of these things. And then the world, if we don't think that we need self-help, we'll at least put our faith in other things. How many people right now around us would scream from the rafters, what we need in this country right now is a different or a better form of government. We need a better leader. We need a better politician, a better president, a better court, a better whatever the case may be. And if we had those things, life would be so much better. And so there are people that will bank everything on that to be the fix of all of our problems. Or or you'll see other things as well. We need better education systems. We need racial reconciliation. We need more understanding, more unity, more diversity. Or or we just need a better economy where people have opportunity. If people had opportunity, then they would do better and and they would find peace and there wouldn't be a lot of this backbiting and, and fighting and stealing and all those kind of things. Now listen, the church of Jesus Christ has been put here and exists for the purpose where we have to have something better to offer the world than what the self-help section of Barnes and Noble has. There's gotta be something different. I mean, if you just walk through that self-help section, you see everybody's offering peace and prosperity, but no one agrees on how to get there. And the church has to have something different to offer. We've got to have a different voice that doesn't just blend into the, the assortment of voices that are saying, we need this, we need this, we need this. Surely the church has a better answer. And the sad reality is, is that in many cases, the church says the same thing. It's just stuff dressed up, things in choir robes, so it looks more holy and looks more Christian, but it's the same sort of things. And so you have churches and and. and seasons of Christianity where they said, what we need is a better morality. The the problem that you have right now that you're not finding joy in your life, you're not finding peace in your life because you're doing this and this and this and this. If you would instead stop doing this, 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 this and start doing this, 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 you would find joy and peace. The reason that you're not happy is because you're having sex outside of marriage and it's wrecking you. And if you would not do that, you would find more joy. Or the reason, you know why your life's a wreck? It's drugs and rock music, man. You need to knock all that stuff off and you need to go away from the secular music. You know what you need to do? You would find more happiness if you tithed more, if you went to church more, if you read your Bible more, if you prayed more. And look, don't email me. Are those good things? Of course they are. Should we read our Bibles and pray? Of course we should. Don't email me, email Aaron. But listen, of course, but listen, listen. are those the root issues? Is the issue with what's broken in the world the fact that we don't read our Bibles enough? Is that the core? Is what's wrong with people who aren't finding joy in the world around us the fact that they have a type of morality that's setting them aside or setting them back or hurting them? Is that the core issue? Because if that's the advice we come, then we're just a self-help section. Do this, do this, do this, you'll find peace. Do that, do that, do that, you'll find joy. It's the same thing, but here's the truth. Here's the truth of scripture. All of life's ills, all of the world's brokenness, whether it be political or personal, all of life's ills stem from the the fact that man has rebelled against God and that our relationship with God has fractured. 
And that's the reason we don't have peace. That's the reason we don't have joy. And if we come in with self-help stuff first and say, this is what you need, do this and this and this and this, and we don't go to the root of it, this is what you need is God, then we've just set people up for works-based salvation that can promise a form of godliness but will never, never suffice. The Bible makes this really, really clear. Paul says in Romans 1, for example, let's put this first text that I've got here from Romans 1. Paul tells us that there are three areas in which humans, all humanity, has rebelled against God, and as a result, we've wrecked the world that we live in. Number one is we worship and pursue creation over creator. Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. And so you'll have people that worship things rather than the God that gave us things. I was at a wedding last night for a young couple here, part of our church, and Jeremy was doing the wedding, and this was a big part of his even wedding sermon that he just nailed it to say, look, weddings are awesome, but weddings aren't the point. The point is that as we are there at a wedding watching this couple come together, we're not supposed to stop and only celebrate the wedding, but we are to look beyond the wedding to the thing that it points to, which is God. So for example, in a wedding you have not only this picture of Adam, Eve, the first wedding where God even started creation in that, but you see this picture of the gospel where two people come together and say, I'm going to love you in spite of your faults. I'm going to love you no matter what. I'm going to stick with you through thick, thin, health, death, not death, that's the one we let them out, isn't it? Uh, Sickness, all of those things. Like, I'm going to stay no matter what. what. What does that mean? That's God saying, look, it's the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. I will be your God. It's not, it's not contending on what the other person does. That God loves me in spite of me. It's the very banners that we have. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So even in a wedding, that weddings can be those things that we just, we elevate young people can just, I want to be married so bad. And the wedding can end up becoming the point. But as worshipers of Jesus, we're supposed to look beyond that and not just glory in the wedding. We look beyond the football game. We don't just glory in the fact that an athlete can do whatever it is that he's doing in that particular event, but we look beyond that and go, look how God could create someone with that kind of skill and ability. Whether they're a Christian or not, we can see the work of God in them. We don't go and worship nature like some people do, but we can go to Crater Lake, we can go to mountains, we can go to the Rogue River and go, look what God can do. We look beyond these things and worship the creator, not the creatures that have been created. But we tend to fail in that area. And if, if you don't, when, when we miss that, then we're guaranteeing ourselves we will only always have a surface level ability to enjoy life. Our ability to have joy and understanding of the things going on in the world around us will only go so deep. And God has so much more for us. The second one is in Romans 1.21, that we have all failed to acknowledge God or be thankful. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And the idea here is that everything we have All that we are, all that we have been given, has been given to us by God. And so rather than glorying in them ourselves and hoarding these things, our responsibility, the the idea is that we as believers would look beyond the gifts given to the giver of the gifts. 
This is the idea. And the very word thanks, that's what that means. Thanks doesn't just mean like some general gratitude, but, but one of the definitions of thanks is to assign blame. And so the idea meaning this, he has no one but himself to thank. You might say, oh, he got in trouble, he has no one but himself to thank. Or when someone does something for you and you say thank you, you are giving them credit for the work that was done on your behalf, are you not? Well, that's what thanksgiving means, that when things are, when God blesses us, that the responsibility, the goal of the Christian is that we look to God and we give him thanks. We are acknowledging him and his work in our lives. But, but instead, uh, the, my, the, my favorite analogy is the one that Matt Chandler does all the time. He, he says, look at a guy like Shaquille O'Neal in a basketball game, dunks, and then runs down court dancing. That's just dumb. You're 7'4". You know what I mean? Like, how much ability does it really take just to dunk a basketball when you're 7'4"? None. But to hoard the glory and say, look at me, look what I've done, look what I have, look at my empire, look at whatever the case may be, and to fail to acknowledge the work of God in our lives when we were created to glorify God in every area, that we are guilty of that. And then the last one is this, that we think we're smarter than God. We think we're smarter than God. Uh, the, the passage goes on. For though, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And, and the idea is like no one would ever say that they're smarter than God, but we behave that way so often. Because we'll say, I, I see what God's word says, and I see what God says that I should do in this area of my life or in this particular situation. I know what God says, but, but I'm going to do this because I think this would be better. This will make me happier not following God. Or, yeah, God promises certain consequences, but I don't think so. I think I'll do this. And it's just like going back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate of the food. You can be like God. And so we too want to do the same thing. And so rather than trusting God's plan for our life, we'll set our own plans, our own agendas, and our own priorities over top of God's. Now, Paul makes this really clear in Romans 1 that these are the, the three main overarching sins that lead to all sorts of unholiness in the world around us. Now, think about it. If the issue is something in the world is broken, something's wrong, and self-help can't fix it, those self-help books aren't going anywhere, and, and what is it that's really broken? Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? We worship and pursue creation over creator. We fail to acknowledge God or be thankful, and we think we're smarter than God, and we, we act as our own God and our own Savior anytime. And then Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are enslaved following Satan in the course of this world, that we are dead. Then the question is, what in the world? How do we fix that? How in the world can you fix that? How do you fix such a gap? What self-help recipe can make up for that? There's nothing. And the Bible takes it even further. Because then the Bible goes on to say that if we could do something to make up for it, we would still be in sin because we'd be failing to acknowledge and glorify God and his work in our lives. It would be our own work. You know what that means? We're stuck, doomed, no hope within ourselves to save ourselves in any way, no ability to argue our way out of it, everyone guilty before God and doomed. And this is the message of Scripture. This is what the Scriptures do tell us about the reality of life apart from Christ. Christ. 
that the issue isn't just what we do, the issue is who we are. And so to just go to a self-help section and say, do this, do this, you'll be happier, those are external works, but they do nothing to change the nature. We don't, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. And so something has to happen that is outside of the reality of who we are. And that's where Jesus comes and says, you don't need to do better, you don't need to be improved, you don't need to, be work, you don't need to work harder, you need to be born again. You need to start over. You need to be reborn. You need a new life. The old man needs to die, and there needs to be a new life within you. And so here's Paul in the book of Ephesians. Now, Paul's writing to the church. In Ephesians, Paul's writing a letter to churches in the area of Ephesus. So his intended initial audience are Christians. People who have already put their faith in Jesus, people who are followers of Jesus Christ. This is important to understand in the context here that he's writing to Christians. But if you're in this room and you're an unbeliever, you've got to listen to this. Because this is the whole of salvation and all of your hope for fulfillment, peace, joy. All of those things lie in these two verses. It says in Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It could be said that all the theology of Heritage Christian Fellowship can be found or based out of these two verses. Charles Spurgeon, one of the most famous preachers of all time, tells a story where he was actually traveling to another church where he was supposed to be teaching, but he was running late, which if you know anything about Charles Spurgeon's life, that's weird for him. He actually believed tardiness would lead to other sins in life. So tardiness was something in his life that he held to big time, but there were like delays on a train or something like that that held him back that he couldn't control. And so when he got to the church he was supposed to speak at, running way behind, he opens the doors to the church and as he comes in, he can hear someone else preaching in the room already. And he's like, well, what's going on? When he walked into the room, he looked up and he was relieved to see his own grandfather, who was a great preacher in his own right, had, since Charles wasn't there, everybody's there, his own grandfather, knowing the text that Charles was gonna be preaching out of, got up to the pulpit and starts preaching Ephesians 2, verses one through 10. And when he saw Charles coming in, he said, oh, Charles, come on in. I got to like verse seven. Come on up here. And, and Charles Spurgeon at first was like, no, you've already started. This is what the Lord is doing. And, and he's like, no, my grandson can do this better than me. Charles, come on up here. And he literally pulls him up on stage and he gets to the Bible and he's like, okay, so Charles, I got to right here. I just told them about the dark situation of their life apart from Christ. That's where I was. Take it away. And he sits down in a chair. And Charles Spurgeon walks up to the pulpit and then just begins to start preaching about the grace of God. And, and what they discovered was it was this theme that it didn't matter who the preacher was, it's the, gloriful, or the, the, the glory of the beauty of this text coming forth. And, and Charles's grandfather kept doing something during the service, even though he wouldn't preach. Although once or twice he got up and came up with Charles and tapped him on the shoulder and said, we should tell him about this. And he would say something into the thing and then he would sit back down and, and Spurgeon remembered it as one of his favorite memories preaching with his grandfather before he died. But one of the things his grandfather kept doing over and over as he sat there, 
Charles Spurgeon would get to a certain point. He would say something about the gospel or the grace in this text, and his grandfather would go, tell him that again, Charles. Tell him that again, Charles. And so he would. He's, it's grandpa. So I'll stop. Okay, this is what I said. Tell him that again, Charles. Tell him that again, Charles. And when that was over, Charles Spurgeon said, you know what I realized? That's my ministry, to tell him that again, to tell him the gospel again, and tell him the gospel again, and tell him the gospel again. I mean, even myself, as I was preparing this, I start looking at like, man, so many of the things that I'm going to say today, we've been saying over and over and over again. And then Charles Spurgeon's words or his grandfather's words would echo in the back of my mind. Tell him again, Jeff. Tell him again, Jeff. Tell him again, Jeff. So if, if I say anything, you're like, that's actually the text. Not that I say it eloquently, John, or anything like that. Just say, tell him again, Jeff. You can do that. All right. But so this is the text. Tell him again, Charles, he said, and this text is going to tell us three huge truths that we talk about here all the time, and you got to hear it again. Three huge truths. Number one, you are saved. Number two, salvation comes only by grace. And number three, grace is received only through faith. So the first one, you are saved. Verse eight, for by grace you what? What does that say? Have been saved. This is important to take a moment and think about this. He doesn't say, by grace, one day you will be saved. He didn't say, by grace, eventually you're going to be saved. He says, no, by grace, you are saved. And that's profound to just stop and think about for just a moment. For those that have put their faith in Christ, again, he's talking to Christians for those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ, he's saying, you are, not have been, are. It is finished, Christ saying from the cross. It's done. It is an end to strife, an end. Your salvation is secure, not in your faith, not in your understanding of Scripture, not in the self-help things you do. Your salvation is secure because of a specific and true, literal, historical event that took place when Christ went to the cross, died for your sins, three days later, rose from the grave. He is now ascended into heaven, and if you have put your faith in him, you are now saved. I was waiting for tell him again, Jeff. That was a good, you're saved. It's not a, I need to do it. You're saved. <laughs> okay, let's, let's establish some ground rules. Okay. No. <laughs> this is important to know. Hey, Christian, you're saved. How quickly we go back to, I gotta, but I still need to, I still gotta. Just hear the text. You have been saved. It's done. Christ lives, Satan loses, you are saved. That is a beautiful reality. The second one is this. Salvation comes only by grace. Only by grace. For by grace you have been saved. There is no other salvation. It is all by grace. Salvation does not originate from us. Salvation is not effectual because of us. It is an alien righteousness, a foreign act, if you will, that has been done to us from outside. And we and our work and our efforts have nothing to do with the fact that we have been saved. It is grace. 
The, the, the righteousness of the most righteous man you can possibly think of is wholly inadequate to save him from the sins and ills that we have committed against God. We have been saved by grace. One of the, it's, it's a blessing and curse with being in the position that I am, and maybe some of you guys, whether pastoral or not, have, have been able to do this before, is that I've been around more than a few people as they've died or right before they died or as they are dying. Lots of people. And, and lots of different types, people who aren't believers and people who are. And I've been around enough of them, not tons, but enough of them to see certain patterns sort of develop in the way some of those things go. And, and I can tell you this right now, when a saint comes to die, when I'm sitting beside someone like I remember our good friend Jack Ellis, or, or, or people like that, when a saint comes to Don Nissen, who just passed away recently, when a saint, a follower of Jesus, I'm not, I don't mean perfect, sinners like all of us, but when a follower of Jesus, a saint, comes to die, I have never, ever seen them laying there on the bed going, I sure am glad I read my Bible and did this, and I tithe, and I did all this kind of stuff, so I should be in really good shape. I have never heard that ever in my life. But I've heard many of them say, I'm so thankful God is so good. I'm so thankful God is so gracious. Thanking God for his grace in their life, not one iota of I'm glad I did all these things. But you know what I've also seen in those who don't know Jesus? I've seen people who don't know Jesus die with fear and regret, saying, I should have done more. Because you cannot do enough. And you will never do enough good works to get to the point that you can die at peace knowing your salvation is assured. And the, the reason is, is because we're too broken to ever make up for that. The issue's not in what we do, it's who we are. And those actions don't change that. But by the grace of God, he has saved. And I've seen many people lying on their deathbed saying, I'm just thankful that God is good with no fear. With no fear. Knowing that this is their last night on earth. Knowing it and having no fear at peace. Not just grace to save them, but grace that is even sustaining them through the process of death. Having total assurity in the fact that God is absolutely good. And with thanksgiving, assigning blame to God for all the good things that did happen in their life. I'm thankful God gave me such a great family instead of I'm thankful that I raised up such a great family. I'm thankful that God blessed me with a career and ability to take care of my family instead of I'm thankful that I worked so hard that I was able to do these things. Giving God credit for everything because God is good. And this text here, as well as many others in scripture tell us, There is no salvation apart from grace. Salvation is a glorious gift from God that has nothing to do with who we are or what we've done. If it has anything to do with who we are, it's that it's been given because we need it so bad. That's it. It is the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Amen? And then the third is this. Grace comes by faith. 
We're saved, that salvation comes through grace, but that grace comes by faith. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, some attempt to lay claim on God's grace in different ways. Some would attempt to lay claim on God's grace through works. If I do enough things, God will bestow favor on me and I'll be saved. Others attempt to lay, lay claim to God's favor through ceremony. If I do this ceremony, if I'm baptized, that's when I'm saved because I got baptized. Or if I tithe enough, or if I go through whatever religious ceremony, God will give me his favor. Um, Others, even through things such as intense feeling or emotion. I mean, you can see this a lot of times heading into Easter week in the Middle East. There'll be all sorts of things that go on, especially on Good Friday or Monday, Thursday, where where people are recreating, if you will, Jesus' walk along the Via Dolorosa up to Calvary where he was crucified and you will see people passionate about their faith beating themselves until they bleed, desiring to show the earnestness of their feeling, how serious their faith is and how much they love God and that they really mean these things. But here's what we have to understand. Faith in general, faith in and of itself is not what saves you. Faith is the vehicle by which the grace of God is appropriated to your life. And so the reason that's important is faith in general, the strength of your faith is not what saves. What saves is what your faith is in. Because listen, there are people in Muslim extremist faiths that believe that if they strap a bomb to their chest, go to a building, kill themselves and anyone else around them, that God is going to be so proud of them that he's going to give them this and this and this and this in heaven. I would say their faith in that belief is actually stronger than a lot of Christians' faith in some of the promises of God. But it doesn't save them. It damns them. So we'll hear people say things like, oh, he's a person of faith, or in the the prosperity gospel movement, you see this big time. You need stronger faith, bigger faith, and you'll prove your faith by doing this, 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 and it spins right right back to works. Faith is not what saves you. The grace of God saves you, and that faith is appropriated to you by or excuse me, that grace is appropriated to you by faith. Tim Keller said the best way that he could think of to, to help us to understand that is, imagine that you're on a skateboard and you're exhausted and you've, you've got a long way to go to get home but you've been going a long way and there's a big hill coming up and you're just exhausted. You cannot kick one more moment but then here comes a car along and it's going slow enough that you can pull this off. Let's suspend reality for just a moment here. And so you take a backpack that you happen to have off and you take a strap off of that backpack and as the car's coming by, you hook it onto the bumper of that car and now work is done. That car pulls you along gently to exactly where it is you need to go. It's your next door neighbor's car. They're gonna drive you straight to where your house is so there's no more effort, no more kicking. You're just holding onto that strap that's attached to that car and you're going. Now, Keller says that car would be, if you will, the picture of the grace of God that has done the work that saves you. And your faith is the strap being held to the bumper. And some straps are thicker than others. Some straps are longer than others. Some straps have been around longer than others. Some straps are brand new. But what saves is not the strap. What saves is the thing the strap is attached to. And that is what saves us. The fact that our faith is in, not just faith in Christianity in general, not just faith in a God in general, but faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. It is a confident trust and knowledge of the work of Jesus and who Jesus is that saves us. That we put our faith in him. I am 
saved by the grace of God, the work of Jesus Christ, and I put my faith to him. I am strapping myself to him. He will bring me home. That is salvation. Salvation has been completed in Christ. It is by grace alone, and it is appropriated to us by faith. And now then, look what happens real quick. It's as if Paul knows our weaknesses because they're his too. But he goes on to say in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he hammers it again. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now why does he emphasize this? Hasn't he been doing this all along? And we're coming out of Galatians. So we've seen this over and over and over and over. But... Tell him again, Charles, this is what Paul's doing. Here he is to the church once again, coming in and reiterating, this is not your doing. Why? Because he knows that for some of us, we're gonna have pride. I am saved because I found the truth and I learned about Jesus and I did this and this and this. Or for others of us, we're gonna have fear. I mean, I'm, I'm saved, but I need to do more to make sure because I'm saved, but I, I'm so broken. I don't think he really likes me. And so there's still this striving that tends to go on. But what we need to know and what Paul is continuing to hammer down is that salvation does not come through any human source. And the reason is salvation is not a reward. Salvation is not a wage. It is a gift. It's a gift. So for example, and, and listen, please hear this. And I know you go, I already know this, but just I'm telling you again, Jeff. So listen, Please know this because you will never properly, fully worship Jesus if you don't understand this. I am blessed that I, if you will make my living, I get paid by Heritage Christian Fellowship to do this. You guys have jobs where you're being paid for different places. Whatever your job is, think about this. When payday comes along, do you rejoice? Now, some weeks, maybe, right? Whew, the bill collectors didn't call. We got paid in time. But I mean, just in general, do you find yourself rejoicing in, praise be to heritage, they paid me again? No, that's not really what we tend to do, is it? In fact, we get paid after we've worked our first two weeks. Why? Well, because that's payment for services rendered. In other words, they owe you that money. You earned it. You deserve it. It's a wage. So when the paycheck drops into the automatic deposit or however you get paid, you don't look at it and go, woo and praise. Maybe we should be thankful praising God for it, but we, we don't rejoice so much. In fact, if it didn't get there on time, what do we do? We pitch a fit. Where's my money? Where's the money I earned? But here's the reality. No one has ever, apart from Jesus Christ maybe, no one has ever lived a life that puts them in a position where God owes them life. In fact, Paul says that we've lived a life that has put us in a position where we deserve death. Salvation is not like that. Salvation's not a wage. It's none of those things. And now listen, Paul's writing to a Gentile audience, so he's not just talking about Jewish religion in general. He's talking about human effort overall, trying to earn God's favor, believing that you can do enough in all of these things. And he's saying, listen, you're dead. You haven't earned any of these things. You're dead. What can a dead man do to earn any of this stuff? You can take an unregenerate man an unbeliever, and you can polish him up all you want and have him do all the things that you want, but it's not gonna suffice because the issue is we don't need improvement. We don't need help to get better. Grace doesn't improve you. 
Grace kills the old nature and brings life to a new nature. It doesn't make better, it renews completely. And that's what we need. And salvation, Paul is saying, is just as much a divine act as creation was. What role did you play when God created the heavens and the earth? The answer, none. That's salvation. You go, but, but Jeff, I responded. I responded to the gospel. I came forward at the prayer. I, I understood the scriptures and I knew the truth. That's true. But then who opened your eyes to those truths? The scriptures say that the things of the spirit are only discerned by the spirit. Who called you into that place? Who orchestrated your very life to bring you into that moment? Now, all you theologians, don't go Calvinist, Arminian on me on here. How the responsibility and all that stuff doesn't, I, I don't know, I don't care. The responsibility is this. God is the saving agent, clearly in scripture. It is a divine act and we're saved. And all we have to do is think back to our own salvation. What did we do to deserve the grace and mercy of God? Uh, most of us, weren't you amazed when you heard it? Didn't it almost sound too good to be true? That's the grace and mercy of God. It is not a reward. It is not a wage. It is a gift. And so, Jeff, why do we need to be told this over and over again? You've been saying this stuff so much lately. Because we don't live it. Because most Christians still live like orphans. And what I mean by that is this. All of you blew it this week somewhere. All of you did. Somewhere we had an attitude that didn't glorify God. We said something we shouldn't have. We did something we shouldn't have. All of us. And most people in our very nature, there's this thing that when that happens, we either live as orphans and feel like, well, I, I, I can't go to God with this. I can't go to church. I can't go worship I'll just lock myself in a corner, so to speak, and I'll, I'll beat myself up over this for a little while, and I'll feel guilty about this, but I, I got nowhere that I can go with this. That's living as an orphan. Trusting in the grace and mercy of God means I've blown it. Where else can I go but to God? I'm going there now. That's that. If we don't live as orphans, then we live as if we're on some sort of diet. I blew it, so now I gotta go extra hardcore tomorrow because I gotta make up for what happened yesterday. And that, too, is not the gospel of Jesus Christ at all. This, let me tell you what a mature believer in Jesus Christ is. I mean, in your mind right now, picture, what, if, if you pictured someone that is, man, that is what a mature follower of Jesus looks like. How would you describe that? They never cuss. They never watch rated R movies. They don't drink. They're at every church service. I mean, what are the things... I'll tell you what a mature believer in Jesus Christ is. Faith in and of itself means you are resting in something. That's what faith means. When you put your faith in it, you are putting your rest, your energy, your hedging, your bets, whatever you want to call it, you're resting in something. And a mature believer in Jesus Christ is someone who rests in the finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not in their own works, not in the things that they've done, but I'm telling you right now, I have seen so many saints as they've come to their deathbed, again, not resting or glorying in their works, but saying, I'm so glad Jesus is good. And so as we grow in our faith, to grow into godly maturity is not so much like, man, I'm so mature as a Christian, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. No, a mature believer of Jesus Christ is the one who can quickly 
come to a place of rest in him for his work, his grace, his provision, his, his forgiveness. That we don't live as orphans anymore where I've got to go hide. And we don't live as like we're on some diet, like beating ourselves up. Now I've got to go work extra hard tomorrow to earn favor because I cannot come to God. But a mature believer in God just says, I have to come to Christ. Where else can I go? And who understands that they are welcomed when they come there. That, that they aren't coming to God who's got a, a furrowed brow looking upon you going, what's wrong with you, Jeff? How many times do I have to deal with you? But that who looks at you and says, my son, come. That's what Jesus said. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. You want to grow to be a mature follower of Jesus Christ? Rest in him. What about the morality? The spirit and Jesus himself will take care of those things, but the goal is not improved behavior. The goal is a relationship with God. Amen? Church, followers of Jesus, you have been saved. That list of things in your mind that you still think you need to do to get God to smile at you, it's been done. Jesus did it. He delights in you. He loves you. Yes, he wants to grow us. Yes, he wants to, to do things that will bring us into greater and greater joy. He wants us to live a certain life. He wants us to follow his word, absolutely. But the work has been done by Christ and Christ alone. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The work is done. Rest in him. Follow him, but rest in him. When you fail, don't go into the mindset that now somehow I've got to make up for this, but go to God. When you blow it, don't go, I've got to hide, I've got to figure this out, and now as my memory separates me from that instance, maybe then I can come back. No, run to Jesus. His mercies are new every morning. To the unbeliever, run to Jesus. Unbelievers have the same issue. Unbelievers often go, Man, that sounds good. And I could use that. And there's people in here, I've heard testimony, I know a lot of these things, I know these things are true. I could use that too. But for many unbelievers, what do you do? And so I'm gonna come to Jesus as soon as I stop doing this and stop doing this and stop doing this and clean up this and clean up this and clean up this. Then I'll be worthy to come to Jesus. You don't clean yourself up before you call the ER when you're broken your leg. You go to the hospital because that's where you're healed. And so unbeliever, who's been looking for peace and hope and coming up empty everywhere you turn. Rest in Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Put your faith in the grace and mercy of Jesus and let him save you. Salvation is complete. It's done, it's there and available. Put your faith in him. Will you stand with me? Spurgeon closed his sermon on Ephesians 2 by saying this, it is the gift of God. That is, it is the eternally secure in the opposition to gifts of men which soon pass away. 
Not as this world giveth, I give unto you, says Jesus. If my Lord Jesus gives you salvation at this moment, you have it, and you have it forever. He will never take it back. And if he does not take it from you, then who can? If he saves you now through faith, you are saved. So saved that you will never perish. Neither shall anyone pluck you from his hand. May this be so with every one of us. Amen. God, may that be the reality of every person in this room. But Lord, sadly, I know that's just not the truth. In this room right now are people that are dying and need hope. And so God, I pray that even as we sing, you would break through, whether it's breaking through religious works where they feel like they're earning your approval or breaking through sinful worldliness where they're seeking approval in places that are destined to let them down. I pray, God, you would break through those things and save the lost. And God, for the rest of us, Lord, may we just take this moment here to worship you because we understand exactly the reality of the gospel. We were dead in sin and hopeless, but an amazing grace has been poured out on us. And by faith, we have been saved. So God, may we worship you differently now than we did even earlier in humble gratitude and worship for the glorious work that you've done in our lives. This moment, we're gonna sing to the Lord. There's gonna be some men and women available in the back. I'll be available right over here in the front. If you don't know Jesus, please come. Come and rest. Stop doing these things on your own. Stop looking for hope in things that are always gonna let you down. Come to Jesus. He will save you.